Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview style podcast in the MedTech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella and our guest Bart Sanders at Stentit discuss the importance of being humble, his decision to make the leap into founding Stentit, the MedTech hub being built in Eindhoven, the first steps if you are a first-time entrepreneur raising capital, the importance of grants to help get the company going, the importance of a good ecosystem for a startup, building relationships with investors, how long it takes to raise the seed round, the importance of warm introductions, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Bart Saunders. Thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. Very excited to tell this story. You and I met in person in September of 2019 at TCT in San Francisco. And you were telling me about Stented at the time and you were looking about where you go in the um, future of the company, et cetera. And so you and I had a great conversation. We've been connected ever since. And I was very fortunate to see um, the press release, I'm sure with millions of others, that you actually raised your round not too long ago and then had the very good fortune of seeing you in person also not that long ago at Euro PCR 2022. Fortunately, we're back to international travel. So I want to say thank you very much for joining here today on the MedTech Money Podcast. And the reason why we're here, beyond what we're going to do is tell your story on how you raised that 1.8, is that I've talked to medtech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as from investors around the world, and I've discovered that there's no silver bullet or magic or even a specific formula about how to raise or invest capital specifically in medtech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights and stories so that we can demystify this process for med tech innovators and help them benefit from this information. And so the audience here is med tech entrepreneurs as well as investors. And I'd like to share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO like you were not all that long ago, who has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself, especially ones who I've had the, the pleasure of actually watching this journey from a distance and actually seeing not only at the, the beginning stages of how do you, you're going about raising, when are you raising, what do you need the money for? And then also all of a sudden seeing the press release come out and your success. So we're gonna tell your story, stented story, and also that capital raise story. Uh, but before we do that, I have a few open-ended questions that I want to throw at you to warm up this conversation. The first sure. one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? Or am I missing anything that you'd like to add? 
Yeah, thank you, Giovanni, and thank you so much for for having me. Uh, really an honor, and uh, in all honesty, indeed, when we met in uh, 2019 already, uh, and we we were fundraising and heavily looking after uh, investment and, and getting the company going, and uh, also uh, over the years, also when the podcast started to be released, also I used it for myself as a sort of inspiration, just to get understanding about how this whole thing is working and what to to look for or what not to do and the do's and the don'ts. And uh, yeah, it's really, uh, really an honor now to be part of the of the podcast as well. Hopefully, also to give back to the community. So, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my story as well. Um, and to come back to your question, um, if it's the lifeblood of uh, of medtech startups, uh, people and money, um, yes, I think it is. It's a uh, it's a majority. I think it's really necessary to uh, to give uh, the the company and the startups uh, the boost and also. Uh, the juice that it needs to to really make it to a, to a good end. Um, I, I do have to to add that besides the money and the people, uh, also a really important thing is really the idea and the vision that really has to be there. Um, I think there are a lot of people that really want to have a startup. They they just have the intrinsic motivation. They want to have a startup just to have the experience and everything. And there is a lot of money out there. And then I think what's important to get it to connect it is really also the idea and the vision, how to make that then click together. Um, and that's something uh, from my perspective, which is also yeah critical and essential to, to make it a good startup. But um, yeah, indeed, people and money, they, they are also key ingredients as well. And watching over the past couple of years and, and seeing this unfold, I'm sure, and, and I'm, I'm very excited about this story. I, I'm just going to ask you point blank when we get there, what was the story of raising this 1.8 million euro? Um, but hold off for a second. There's a lot of challenges that go into this, especially this early stage money and developing new insightful technology within a medical field, certainly a regulated industry. Um, also being based in Europe right now, where for it seemed like decades, people were going over, or companies were going over to Europe first with CE Mark. Now all of a sudden, MDR is in place, and we're seeing some shifts there. So it's about timing, etc. So much goes on in building a med tech startup. Do you believe in luck, and how much does luck play into the the success of a med tech startup, or even med tech in general? Yeah, I think luck is is critical. Um, also, we have had uh, several just luck moments that that we just took advantage of. Um, I think luck is important. Also, yeah, your idea also should should fit in uh, in, in just time. Uh, people should really be open to accept new technologies or be ready to get new technology on board. Or there should be this unmet need that really is so unmet that your solution is really there to to address the need. I think also what is important also to create luck or to help luck a little bit uh, to get it there. Um, I think also what's important to unlock the luck, so to say, is really to have an open mindset, really go out there, talk to people. Uh, don't be shy. Just share your ideas. Once you have good protection on your ideas, um, just go out and talk to as many people as possible. And important there as well, also remain humble. I think being humble is essential. Uh, don't be the I know it all, I've been there before, uh, I, I know the path. I think if you remain humble and, uh, and, and be honest to people, they're also willing to help you and they will provide you opportunities that otherwise will remain shut. So luck is critical, you need it. Uh, and I think with a good attitude, you can also create a little bit of luck for yourself. Uh, yeah. I love that. And, and the humble aspect, it just touches me specifically. So um, 
because when you deal with entrepreneurs or or executives in big companies, small companies, or just in life in general, the the aspect of humbleness and you've been there and you've done that, et cetera, just even in human interaction, um, it's a turnoff when someone's just so conf- overly confident, right? And they're and they're they're not humble at all. They're they're arrogant, um, and I have had the pleasure of interviewing amazing entrepreneurs like yourself. And I, I keep on coming back to this one reference point, and I know that there's other ones, but Todd Houston, the CEO of Active Surgical, uh, I actually even in the title named it um, a humble approach to entrepreneurship. And, and you just see these successful people. And when they take this humble approach and they don't say that they know it all or they've been there and done that before, there's just like this natural magnetism that happens. People want to be around people like that. Obviously, successful people who are also humble at the same time. There's just like this natural magnetism. And also when someone's arrogant, there's like this natural demagnetism that happens or, or, or pushing away factor. So I love the fact that you brought up being humble. I'm a huge proponent of it in terms of trying to disseminate that message into the entrepreneurial world or even just the world in general, because I think the world needs a little bit of a, a good piece of humble pie. So Thank you for that. Um, yeah. any, anything on that, by the way? I, I know that you brought up the topic. I didn't mean to rant on that. No, but it's, it's, yeah, it's I, I just think it's it's also every journey is just new. It's it's uh, maybe you you have uh, had another startup before and, and you successfully made it to an exit, but but your new startup, I don't think it will be just copy paste of what you did before. You will uh, enter new things. Uh, you, you no one knows it all. There will always be new perspectives. And in, indeed, if you uh, if you remain humble, people do want to help you. And I think, especially in the medtech scene, there are so many people that just want to help each other out and just get these crazy new ideas to the patient. It's just the intrinsic nature of how our industry is wired, I also believe. Yep, and I, I love that, I love that. So going into my next question, um, this challenge that you just succeeded in, in finally raising this 1.8 million euro you've had this experience of pitching investors, looking them in the eye, maybe having a good pitch one day, a bad pitch the next, whatever it may be. Um, but you've had this experience of and building your own mental algorithm of how investors think or move or what they like and what they don't like. In your perspective, what is the most investable skill set or characteristic of a medtech entrepreneur and something that you believe investors look for? Maybe it's that one thing that an investor looks for in every entrepreneur that they invest in. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think if it comes down to the individual, I think what they look for is perseverance. So really having the character really to push through, even if things go south. Um, because everyone can, can start a conversation with a shiny story and the best results. And, uh, but the thing is, when things go south, what is your character? What is your, your nature? And if they invest the money in your company, how likely is it that if things go south, that you can still pull things back up and, and keep things going? And um, I think that's uh, an, an important key ingredient that investors are looking for, or should be looking for, because, yeah, things will go south at a certain point in time. And then, you need to have uh, the right mindset uh, not to uh, to give up and just to, uh, to soldier on. And my next question is, I know that you've gone from through, or th- I should say through academia, and then just threw yourself into 
entrepreneurship and, and you figured it out, right? And we're going to get that story here very shortly, but this experience of entrepreneurship that you've endured, right? You just talked about perseverance. If you knew what you know now about being a medtech entrepreneur, when you were back in academia, and if you could just look to the future and, and understand what you were about to go through, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or would you choose something differently at this point? It's funny because indeed, and maybe it also comes back later by training. I'm a biomedical engineer. <clears throat> I have no history in, in business, doing business at all. And I really wanted to just go bluntly into this. I, I the intrinsic need just to, to try this and to see how I can get an invention really to a, a medical product. Um, and yeah, um, um, your question, sorry, uh, could you repeat the question once more? Absolutely. Knowing what you know about being a mentor oh, yeah. or now, would you do it all over again? Yeah, sure. And I think if I see if I'm uh, uh, yeah, living the life now and, and going through that roller coaster, uh, I do really enjoy it. I would do it again, uh, definitely. And if I would do things differently, for sure. Uh, there are so many things that I've learned now that I didn't know before. Um, and if I would do it over again, I try to, to give things maybe a little bit more speed. Uh, also, yeah, as you are an engineer by training, you tend to focus on your research and go faster towards commercialization. So, yeah, I learned a lot and hopefully uh, uh, <laughs> the next venture uh, will be a bit faster than, uh, than this one. Um, but definitely we'll do it again. Yeah. And, and I love this next question with your particular profile, right? So you went from academia, you've thrown yourself right into being a founder as well as now having the title CEO, right? Um, and this idea of being a CEO, it just seems so um, at the helm and so high up and untouchable and you've made it. Um, and sometimes I've heard stories where engineers, physicians, whomever, they ideate this technology in their head and they maybe get a co-founder or whatever it may be. And they're like, let's just go do it. And then they look around, they're like, who's going to be the CEO. <laughs> and then they just out, someone raises their hand. And sometimes that big title gets thrown into people who haven't had 40 years of business experience or 10 years or five years or any. Um, so here you are as being a founder, co-founder of Stented and the CEO. Is it glamorous being a med tech CEO? Well, I, I do understand why people think it's glamorous. In all honesty, it's it's not. It's really hard work, hard labor, and the only um, yeah the only benefit you have is that you have to sign off for everything. So also you take the responsibility of everything, and sometimes it can really feel like a burden to yourself as well. Especially if you are not used to taking all that responsibility, it's something that you really have to get used to. That suddenly you are the one that taking the responsibility, taking these these checks from these investors <clears throat> really have to make it work. So maybe it really looks glamorous from the outside world, but um, I don't think it really is. It's just a lot of work, a lot of responsibility, and it's definitely a load that you carry on. Um, that doesn't say that it's not fun because it, it is really a lot of fun as well because you are the one representing the company. You are the one going on stage and presenting your story. And that's just amazing to do. And uh, there is nothing I like more to do than just talking about the company and also how things are going. And just it's it's it, who I am, what I, what I love to talk about. And it's just, it really represents who I am, the, the company itself. It's in my DNA. Um, but that it is glamorous, not per se, um, it's hard work. And 
This next question, um, I usually ask, what does the name of your company mean, of which I'm, I'm still going to ask you as well. But I, I've never done the part B to that question and not as granular mm -hmm. as the the uppercase, lowercase, or font size or something like that in, in your name. So I'm curious, what does the name of your company mean, Stented? And why did you decide that it's all in capital letters with the exception of the lowercase i? So capital S T. E-N-T, lowercase I, capital T. Tell us what is stented and then the, the reason why you visually decided to do that. Yeah, yeah, good question. So, uh, well, when we were working on the technology, we knew that the type of technology that we are working on is really being applied to also a variety of different cardiovascular indications. And we really wanted to make sure that people knew that the indication that we choose for endovascular prosthesis really the stents, the really going inside the blood vessel so for us, it had to be clear that that message was 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 there. So if they read the company story, the, the company name, that it was obvious what the product was about, um, about the, the spelling with the capitals. Um, if you were writing grants, we wanted to make sure that, uh, that the name of the company strikes out if you read the text and things strike out if you write them in capitals. Uh, so that's why it ended up being capitals. Uh, and it also, if you, if you just look at plain text, you instantly see what the company name is. It's a sort of a, uh, yeah, funny marketing thing that we, uh, that we kept on using. I love that. This is why I asked the question. There, there's, there's, it doesn't matter if it's a short story or a long story. There's usually a good story behind it. So yeah. thank you for sharing that with us. So lo and behold, Bart Sanders, founder and CEO of Stented. Who are you? Person, professional, where did you start your life? How did you build your life through academia and then ultimately becoming founder CEO of Stented? And then when we get there, then I'm going to ask you the question, what is Stented? What's the technology? What are you guys building? So first and foremost, though, who are you? Yeah, sure. So indeed, Bart Sanders, I'm a, a biomedical engineer by training. So uh, I'm not a medical doctor. I also do not have a business degree. I'm really uh, yeah, a hardcore engineer. Um, I did my PhD on uh, um, tissue engineering heart valves, really to, to make a heart valve that could grow with the body. Uh, it was four years of fun, uh, really uh, yeah, traveling all over the globe uh, with your valve and your story, showing the results. And uh, uh, also we, we actually made it work so we could have a valve that, that could be implanted and that could grow. And by the time, if you had the valve that could grow, you also needed to have a stent that can grow with the valve. Otherwise, the, the concept didn't make any sense. So by the time we also started to look uh, together with my co-founder into possibilities to, to make a stent that, uh, that was resolvable and degradable. And then, um, yeah, after the PhD, you, you have to look yourself in the mirror and then say to yourself, yeah, what do you want to do after your PhD? And then two common routes to choose from is either you go to, to a large industry or you stay in academia. Um, staying in academia, it was a lot of fun, but um, I, I felt that that was not really the way to go for myself. And then I thought the technology that we were working on has so much potential beyond the valve that we just wanted to see if we could push it any further. So then we started to tweak the technology and see if we could make it fit for other applications. And since we were focusing uh, on stents by the time, we were trying to see if we just yeah, the poor structures that we are making today, if, uh, if we could make a, a construct that can be balloon expandable to act as a stand. There, basically, the idea was born. Um, there, there was no prototype, nothing yet. We just started with an animation. This is the idea. This is what we wanted to do. And then tried to reach out to key opinion leaders just to get their feedback if, they, if it would make any sense to just uh, yeah, pursue this route. 
Um, and then along the way, uh, we got a lot of people on board. Also, uh, yeah, people uh, really high uh, in uh, in hierarchy uh, that were willing to support us, and that really helped us uh, to build the company and, and get us to the stage where we are now. Very cool. And um, you are based physically in Eindhoven in the Netherlands, right? That's where you're. Yeah, I'm uh, born and raised in Eindhoven. My grandfather comes from Eindhoven. My dad comes from Eindhoven. All works for Philips. I, I was born in Eindhoven, did my study in Eindhoven. In all honesty, I did not really went far. Uh, but apparently everything you need is just right here. So I think I'm just at the right right spot in the, in the world. <laughs> Very good. And I want to stay on that. We're going to rip open the story of how you raise capital. But um, bursting the bubble, one of your investors was BOM, B-O-M, you speak Dutch. I don't. I know BOM is an acronym for something much longer. And fortunately, we had one of the representatives and investors, Jeroen Siemens from uh, BOM on the podcast. And so if anyone's ever interested in learning about geographic investing, listen to the podcast with Jeroen. He did an amazing job. But nevertheless, BOM is an investor in Stentit now and happens to be based in Eindhoven. So there you there you are. Um, <clears throat> I can't, I can't say what BOM actually means. <laughs> I don't know what it stands for. It's a Dutch word. So if you can help me out, let me know. But also I want to dig into the importance of this med tech hub that's being developed in Eindhoven and just speak to Eindhoven. Why, I mean, obviously your grandfather's from there and your lineage is from there, but what's going on in Eindhoven too for all those people who don't know? Yeah, good, good question. I think what, uh, well, first of all, the BOM is indeed a heavy endorser of, of our technology, even uh, years before we, we even, they, they really stepped in as an investor. So indeed, they really support um, initiatives in the region, in the region of Brabant. So that's where the B stands for and BOM is Brabant, the region here. Um, and um, yeah, um, what's going on here in the region is that also because we have the Technical University of Eindhoven here, there are several startups, several spin-offs that come from the university that are working on similar type of technologies. So there's a good infrastructure. There are good um, laboratories. The, the, then the connection with the university, new ideas. And this hub that was created also because of the fact that the university is here and then yeah, supported by, uh, by the local government here to, to really yeah, nurture uh, or uh, grow the, these incentives and these startups here. Um, that really makes it unique. And I think, uh, yeah, the region here is called uh, the Brainport region. It appears to be one of the, the brightest uh, locations in the world uh, to be. So um, I think it really makes sense. It's, uh, it's not only the, the medtech startup, but there are also big companies that are located here that also contribute to the ecosystem. So, um, yeah, Eindhoven definitely is a, is a great place to be as a, as a tech startup. So help me out here. I've been to Eindhoven. I've helped and built a lot of teams for medtech startups in Eindhoven, but help me out if I go down the list, if and I miss anything. I, I want to paint this very clear picture for those who don't know about, and I think it's, what is it, the the smartest square mile or something like that? Square. It, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know what I mean, right? It's, it's the most intelligent square something in the world or, or something like that. But um, anyway, uh, you have in Eindhoven, you have the Philips legacy, the Philips history, which has helped grow and spawn off just even this innovation and technology mentality within this small region. So Philips, the big company that the world knows about, comes from this tiny place, Eindhoven. You also have 
strong universities like you mentioned, the Technical University of Eindhoven spews off and grows amazing amount of medical technology. Obviously, you coming from there, so you can speak to that, but you have companies like Zeltis, I think Precise, and the surgical robots that have come out of there, Micro... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Microsure, all, I mean, all these different ones, and I'm sure there's many more. Then you have um, oh, the... Uh, what's the other place where you have the, these... Um, um, right now, Onward is based there. I think Bambi is based there. It's another technical place where... You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a larger location, uh, more at the industry side. So uh, also there, if you want bigger spaces, there are there are opportunities uh, to to rent a place there. And you also see that a hub is now centered around that region. There, it's more in the north of uh, of, of the city. Do you remember what it's called though? I am forgetting right now. Uh, no, not per se. Uh, no, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll have to, <laughs> when I post this, I, I, I'm ashamed because I've, I've done work. I've even been there and I, I can't remember it right now. Um, but anyway, I'll post it in there for anyone curious about that. But you have all these amazing facilities um, that are for innovation and growing startups. You have amazing universities. You have investors who support this particular region like BOM. Um, so it's, it's just quite amazing to watch this this small little town of Eindhoven just grow into the, being this innovation hub within Europe. So I think that's very, very cool. Um, so lo and behold, I want to jump into this story of you raising this capital and having you teach the world of people listening in, what is it really like to leave academia, jump into entrepreneurship, not having a business background, not knowing anything about raising capital, certainly innovating, being an engineer that you are, um, but let me just start with this question. How do you go from not having a business background, finding a technology, wanting to grow that technology into a company, and then there's this one magical day where you're like, well, okay, now I need money uh, if I'm going to keep on going further with this. This is not a real job yet. I, I don't get a paycheck every single week. Yet. I mean, I need to find money to, to grow this company or this idea. Where did you even start learning about how to raise money? What, what were some of the first steps you took? I think, yeah, that, and that's also a great question. I think the first thing you should do, you should give yourself 100% for the company. So if you want to do this, in my opinion, there is no part-time way to do this. I see a lot of people that want to start a company. They stay with one foot in, uh, I don't know, either university or large corporate. And with the other foot, they want to start building a company. Um, well, my own impression is, is uh, yeah, that, the priority, the number one priority to focus on is really a company and you should give your full 100% dedication to that company to make it work. So also uh, that's how we started. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we really started the company. Uh, we got uh, one year of, uh, of a trial period by the university. Uh, so they said, if this is what you want to do, then uh, you can go, you can make use of the labs, the infrastructure. They also provided us with some financial support, which is, I think, a, a great way to start. Um, and then uh, we have one year to prove ourselves. So then we really reached out, tried to, to reach out to, to grants, to get the money in, to get small things going. Because indeed, what I was saying, there was, there, there was no fundamental prototype or no evidence yet that this was working. It's just, just a concept and a movie. Um, so then we got small grants in to, to make some first prototypes, another few grants to uh, do some small preclinical work. 
And um, as we moved along the way, we were able to apply for larger grants because we, we started to collect a larger amount of, of evidence that this was working for which you could apply for these larger amounts. So it was a sort of a, yeah, a natural process that we were going through. But in all honesty, this was also very, very scary because yeah, one year was over. Uh, we were still in a very premature stage with the idea. We had a first prototype that was working and then we were 100% on, on the company, on the paycheck and you really have to, yeah, to, to pay yourself and like keep the, the progress going. Um, and sometimes it was even that uh, just for a few weeks uh, we had runway and then otherwise, uh, yeah, the money, we run out of money and that would be the end of it. So it can be very stressful. It was really stressful. Um, and sometimes it's, it's still even stressful. Money is always a thing. Um, and you, yeah, the, an advice is that really make, keep, be keen on your, on your burn rate, on your cash flow and how much money there is still there to, to do things. Um, but what we did is, yeah, apply for loans uh, also as a next stage. So uh, we also here in Brabant, there is uh, the Brabant Startup Fund. So they really support initiatives as a, as a convertible loan to get a significant amount of money to, uh, to really support it. So that also really helped us a lot. Um, also in the Netherlands, there are uh, governmental organizations uh, that also provide an amount of money uh, to help you out, a few 100 case. And yeah, with that amount of money, uh, we managed to, to get the, the first Series A uh, yeah, C fund from the investors in. Okay, so let me clarify this because I have a few questions coming out of that. So you were given this year by the Technical University of Eindhoven and a little bit of financial capital to just start this idea and, and, and start the clock on this one year. Did all of that story that you just shared happen within that first year? Or when you kept on saying grant after grant after grant after grant, how long was that process? Yeah, so we got a, a first loan from the government. Um, it was a 250 uh, loan. Um, and that loan, you really needed to have the company established to, to accept the loan. So uh, once that um, loan was accepted, also the company really was founded and we just went 100% on, on the company. Um, and as the loan was progressing, um, later on uh, the second year and the third year, we got some small grants coming in. Um, but the majority of the, of the funding really was this governmental loan that, that kept us going. And later on also the convertible uh, notes from, uh, from, the, uh, from the region here in, in Brabant. Uh, so those were the two main sources that kept us going. Uh, um, the other grants, they were just smaller grants, really important grants as well, um, and really, really significant at that time. But those two you know, bigger chunks, they, they kept us going for, uh, for a long while. So then this first 1.8 million euros that came out in the press release, is this the first external money as an investment besides these grant funding that you were able to accumulate? Yeah, so this is the first time that really investors step into the company. Uh, so, so far, yeah, these were, uh, this was non-dilutive funding that we obtained so far. And this is really for the first time that investors step in um, and also give a total new dynamics to the, to the company as well. Um, also, I think um, yeah, what it provides is a sort of a validation of the company that what you're, what you're working on is great, is, um, has good potential, otherwise people will not invest. So for us, it was an important and necessary milestone uh, to reach, yeah. So then approximately then, because I'm sure there was multiple smaller ones like you mentioned, but before this 1.8 million euro was invested in there, um, how much money was in the company to date through all these grants 
this non-dilutive capital that allowed you to build a business up until you could go out and actually raise investor money? Um, let me see. Yeah, so that in total was um, not over a million. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and when did you incorporate the company? When did you first get this lab space in, in the Technical University of Eindhoven? Um, formerly in 2017, we got established. Okay. Yeah. So you're, this is what, 22 now? So you're five and a half-ish years old, something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. The company so just did... turned uh, about five when we, when we closed this round. So, uh, yeah. So, so very lean, obviously, right? So, you know, first 1.8 in, uh, in terms of investor money, a little bit more, a little bit less than 1 million euros to date. Um, Eindhoven-based, like you mentioned. So a fairly lean, very focused operation. Yeah, we stretch things a lot. And also uh, a lot of uh, also suppliers and people that we are still working with today, they also really supported us. Also, uh, universities supported us, but also suppliers for balloons or polymers or uh, getting things done. So really uh, what we needed really to make the devices, they, they were really supportive and, uh, and provided things for free. Um, and that's also what I really liked about the community as well, because, the, the, yeah, the interest for them, was, it was also a risk. Um, and, and they really wanted to help us uh, to provide things for free to, to make standard the success. So people did understand that it was difficult to, to get money, but yeah, left or right helped where they could. And uh, uh, yeah, that was really helpful. But indeed, uh, yeah, we stretched it a long way with uh, yeah, <laughs> comparative little amount of money. I want to touch on this next point. It's it's actually what happened with you and I a couple few years ago at this point. But I've, I come across this problem and challenge for early stage companies so regularly. And your story, you, you came out of the other side of it and, and you proved it out. So I, I think what you could share with us is very valuable, especially to early stage entrepreneurs. Um, so as you know, and some people know who, who might be listening in on this, um, I've been in talent acquisition, building med tech startup teams for my whole entire career. Um, and that's ultimately how we first knew each other. And when we met in TCT in 2019, you and I were just ideating and throwing ideas around. And some of the challenges was like, okay, we have this idea. Do we bring on a new CEO to go raise the money who's been there and done that before? But how do we afford the CEO if we don't have the money to hire the CEO who then is supposed to go raise the money. And I can't tell you how often I hear that, um, whether it's companies spinning out of incubators, companies spinning out of university settings, companies spinning out of people's garages who just took it as far as they kind of could. Um, but this chicken and the egg situation that we've talked about before where, you know, you were a passionate entrepreneur and you were going through this inflection point of, okay, do I need somebody who brings in the business and then can go do that? But I don't have the money to be able to bring them in and go do that. So that's where we left off our conversation in TCT 2019. And, and it's such a common problem with early stage technologies. How did you solve that? And, how, and then ultimately this press release came out at 1.8 million. And obviously you're a much stronger businessman and entrepreneur for persevering through that, right? Going back to your word earlier about perseverance and being that, that skill set or, or characteristic that investors look for, you clearly decided one magical day sometime after our conversation that, okay, well, 
there's no CEO coming to save me and going to just bring in a bunch of money and I, I either can't find them or I still don't have the money to give them or whatever it may be. There was one day you're like, well, this is on me. Let's go do it. How did that happen? I think first you have to understand where the request really comes from because um, the people that start companies, they do not have the intention to, to step down and give the CEO position to someone else. It's not something that from day one you wanted to do, right? That there, uh, At least some people do. They really have a tech idea. They want to start and, and build a company, but don't want to run a company at all. Those, those scenarios are really also there, but that was not the case for me. So if you are there and you have zero experience, you are first-time CEO. Um, also, if you talk to investors that want to put significant and serious money into your company, they better make sure that the people they give it to, that they have the right capacity to make it work. And uh, I fully get that. I mean, if it was my money, I also want to give it to someone with a perfect track record that can really, uh, that, that is trustful to give the money, right? Because who am I? I mean, the, this guy from Eindhoven, no zero track record at all and uh, has a PhD in biomedical engineering. How is he going to, to make this work and make this fly? Um, and then if you talk to a lot of investors and you often get a question, how do you see your own position in the company? Um, and they start poking a little bit. Yeah, if you will be open and have an open mindset to be replaced, um, then you also look to yourself in the mirror. And then you also see yourself not having the right papers to really make this work. And then you also start doubting yourself, am I really the right guy or, or, or girl to really push this forward? Um, so it's um, mind-boggling a little bit. So you really start doubting yourself uh, Maybe you didn't do that when you started the company. You really thought, I, I'm going to do this. I just need the money and then I can just fly. But the more people make you doubt, the more you also start questioning yourself. And then you really go out there and try to see if there are CEOs that, that can do it. Um, I think what, um, and, and, and I really tried. I really tried to look for people. Um, but what I thought that I really needed was not someone with a better vision, but someone that knows how to execute and that really could take the idea from an R&D perspective, really to a product perspective. Because I knew that I was good in doing the R&D, but I lacked the skills really to build the team, to, uh, to put quality systems in place, everything. So I, I, I needed on my team people with experience and expertise. And then I also had the, the, the great luck just to, to get in touch with, uh, with my partner now, uh, Golo. And uh, he, he brought that experience in from Philips. Um, and, and the great thing that happened there, and I think that's also luck or magic, as coming back to your first question, he really had the intrinsic motivation really to help people like me that were struggling in scaling, really to put the effort in the company, to put the foundation there that if there is someone with energy and with a great vision that it could also turn into action. And I think it's then suddenly the combination of the team who is driving the company that makes the investors less questionable if this is the right team to invest in. And then I think that really uh, changed the perspective also from the investors that maybe right now uh, the team has still the opportunity to prove itself and that it's worth to invest the money in the team that was there at that point in time. I love that. Thank you for that insight. And, and hopefully the entrepreneurs listening in right now who are facing the same challenge that you were facing learned how you came through that. And, and maybe they can find a goal somewhere in the world too. Um, I think, yeah, what, what they are really looking for is just the expertise, just having the team there that can really do it. And in all honesty, when I founded the company, the expertise was not all that there was something lacking. 
And then the obvious thing is to replace the CEO. But in, in my case, the puzzle piece was just somewhere else. Um, yeah. That's very cool. I love that. Okay. So I, I want to dig into um, ultimately now raising this capital, right? So when I asked you before about what were the first things that you've done, so now all of a sudden um, you're tasked with raising this capital. Did you sit in front of a computer and go on Google and type in MedTech Investors Europe? Or did you <laughs> did you call your best friends from university or the Technical University of Eindhoven and say, have you raised money before? What do I do? Like, What were some of those very mechanical processes that at least led you to start getting in front of investors um, and what tools, whether it's a pitch deck, an executive summary, like where did you even learn to start having the tools to put together the story to then feel comfortable and confident reaching out to investors to then getting the meetings to then pitching, whether or not they were successful pitches or they ultimately didn't invest or not. I mean, fast forward, you did receive an investment from a few investors, which we'll get into, but what were some of those very mechanical things at the beginning to start you off with these tools to go tell your story and then ultimately having the opportunity to get in front of an investor? how did you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's also something, yeah, where, where do you start basically, right? And I think um, um, yeah, what's good is that there are a lot of these incubator programs that you can participate in. So if you just have a bold idea, you can enter into these incubators, accelerator programs, and they help you build the business. And then mostly by the end of the training or the course, what you end up with is to pitch your story in front of investors. So that's also the first time that we got in touch with investors in the scene. And once you go to some or several of these accelerator programs, you do see the, the usual suspects coming around. Um, and then also gives you a nice opportunity in a, in a low and, and, and nice uh, setting to really go out there, talk to them, just openly ask them their feedback about, about, your, uh, about your business, about the, about the technology, about the unmet need, everything. And then if they're interested or, or not, you, you, yeah, you always should ask for a follow-up uh, meeting just to dive a little bit deeper into the content and ask them if they can make other introductions or if other referrals to other investors. But what we did is also if you go to conferences, you, you do see the usual suspects uh, in the, uh, that, that do want to invest in this type of technologies. And at a certain point, yeah, you start recognizing them or knowing them. And uh, what's important is really to start building a relationship with them and just have often meetings, just give them updates, tell them what you're up to. Um, don't, it, I think when it's too late, if you really need the money and then go there and start saying that, look, this is what I do. I need the money now. It's really about people and building the relationship also with your investor, which is super important. And that's why it's also important to get in touch with them already at a very early stage. So two things. First and foremost, it was burning a hole in my head on our early conversation. And I, I still can't believe I forgot the name. Once again, I've been on the campus before and I completely forgot. But for all those revisiting this conversation about Eindhoven, it's the high tech campus in Eindhoven. Is this? Oh, uh, sure. That's what you are referring to. Of course. <laughs> That's where we're located as well. So we're also in the high tech campus. So yeah, you're in the high tech campus. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a bunch of startups there. Um, it's a very well kept property. It feels almost like a university. People are walking around sharing ideas. It's very modern. Um, great place to eat lunch. Uh, it was. It was. They have a great facility there. It is. It is this amazing brain port 
not to steal the word, but yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Also what it's called in Eindhoven, where it's like this brain port area. Um, and you go there and it's just, it's like a university, but it's actually for companies and it's a campus and it's called high tech campus. The other thing is there's a, an article, it's, it's called Silicon Valley, beware of the sw smartest square kilometer in the world. That's also the other thing. So the smartest square kilometer in the world allegedly is in Eindhoven. So this was absolutely burning a hole in my, my, my head during our conversation. So I finally looked uh, it up. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, I, yeah, of course. Um, I thought you were referring to another region uh, in Eindhoven as well, but no, indeed. So for all the companies, indeed, the high-tech campus is the most interesting uh, location uh, to be there as a company itself. It's really, there are a lot of buzz here. Uh, the large corporates are there uh, and it's really um, also built and also the setting is built really to get these companies get in touch with each other. And also for us, there are a lot of suppliers here. A lot of uh, people that you need in your network are actually just on the walking distance here. And it's, uh, it's really uh, an, uh, an energetic place to be for sure. And also the most IP uh, I think is generating from this campus here. I love that. So once again, just to put that all together, Eindhoven is this little town in the south of the Netherlands in Brabant province. Um, and it has investors that are dedicated to investing in the region. It has high-tech campuses. It has brain ports. It has technical universities or the Technical University of Eindhoven, but there's multiple universities, um, not to mention all the bikes and the very typical Dutch way of living with <laughs> bikes everywhere. So anyway, it's a very, very cool place. I strongly recommend if especially if you're into med tech and innovation to, to visit Eindhoven. It's very cool, not to mention the history of where Philip started. Um, I have never done this before, and I'm going to try to take a unique aspect in terms of a question, um, if you can share it. But I'm looking at the press release now. It says Stentit raises 1.8 million euros in seed funding. The round, was, the round was made by NextGen Ventures, Brabant Development Agency, or BOM, and the 10K Investment Company. So we have three investors in there. We, we just talked about like, where do you start? How do you begin as this nascent entrepreneur who's never done this before? And, and you just shared some of the mechanics behind that. You ultimately found three investors that invested in you. Tell the stories of how you got NextGen Ventures on or BOM on or 10K Investment Company. Like, how did you finally form this syndicate at the very back end? Like, there was a day where NextGen Ventures was like, yep, we're in. And then maybe another day when BOM, we're in. And then 10K Investment Company finished it off, right? Or I don't know the specific order. But now you told us about this early mechanicalness of going out and starting how to raise Tell the success story and reverse engineer that. How did you ultimately find those three? Yeah, so that was really a, a journey. And I think this whole fundraising journey from, from start until finished, and they always say it takes uh, half a year until a year. In our, in, in our experience, it took us a little longer. It was one and a half year. Uh, but the, the, the consistent thing in, uh, in all the conversations with the investment was, uh, was the bond. So uh, when we were just starting with the idea, we already reached out to the bomb and they also have their incubator program and they also helped us shape the business case and everything. And we're really supportive. So um, they were there actually from day one. And uh, together with them, we tried to form several syndicates, also reach out to, uh, yeah, to, to several investors. Um, and um, yeah, the Tenkate investment firm, it's a family office. Um, I got introduced uh, through a connection because uh, yeah, in, at least from my experience, 
um, family offices and uh, uh, in, uh, individuals, they are difficult to find. I mean, investors, you can Google them, you get a list of investors, but family offices, they are uh, a little bit difficult to find. Uh, in my experience, you really need good introductions, but there are really interesting opportunities uh, to get in touch with. Um, so that we went, went through an introduction and uh, Next Gen Ventures actually also went through an introduction of an, uh, another company that I had in the network that was referring to Next Gen Ventures as an interesting opportunity to reach out to. And um, yeah, during the conversation, we tried to put uh, the three of them together and uh, there was a good click and uh, they all believed in the story. And then, uh, yeah, we, we were able to close the round. Um, but yeah, we, we, we talked to, to a lot of investors in the scene, uh, in all honesty, a majority of them just in Holland. Um, and I think also an advice would be to reach out also beyond Holland, although it's also difficult if it's not in your scene where to locate them and to get in touch with. Uh, so we initially yeah, uh, looked at the, the investment opportunities in Holland and yeah, managed to close uh, then the, the seed round with three parties that uh, yeah, are affiliated here with the Netherlands. So introductions are key. If I, if I could take away one line from that, not to oversimplify it, but introductions are really key and, and just the grind of networking. Yeah, it is. And also, if you if you talk to them, they also explain that they get so many applications that they have to, to, to screen in such a rapid pace and they really do not have the time to really sit down and properly evaluate the case. And then if someone gives an introduction, uh, yeah, you already have an advantage over the big pile that they have to go through. So... Um, in my experience, it really helped because also if someone gives an introduction, uh, it also shows that this is something really interesting to look to look at because otherwise someone would not refer it. So I think it, it really helps. And if you have people in your network that can give you an introduction to a VC, definitely make use of it. Yeah. And just to clarify on that one, from my memory and my conversation with Yaron, BOM is, is actually a governmental or provincial investor investing government money right i mean it's not like a private investor right indeed so it's uh yeah there, there's also governmental money in it and uh, really the key is there to uh, to support economical activities here in the region and they also have their key features and one of them is also regenerative medicine it's also something that they heavily want to support in the region because they see that this is blooming and, and there's a trend here that's they which they really want to support. So they also have their specific uh, key aspects that they want to fund, but it's not only medtech what they do, it's also uh, food or uh, uh, several other stuff. So not purely only only medtech. So we'll use a simple terminology. So if BOM is government money, very simple, oversimplifying it, um, is NextGen Ventures and 10K investment companies, are they classic venture capital firms or are they also varying styles of investment? Yeah, so next gen, they are really a VC investor. So they really have venture capital that they invest. Um, and uh, Tenkata Investment Firm, it's a family office. So they have their, their own funds that they, uh, um, it, it's not governmental fund, uh, funding. It's really uh, uh, yeah, from, from the family itself. So that's super interesting. So you have a classical VC, you have a, call it government money through VC, um, and then you have a family office. Sure. Very, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Very cool. Um, to give highlight on that and, and also go through this, <clears throat> you mentioned just the focus or at least your initial focus of pitching to investors in Holland. Make up the number or come close to what your gut is telling you. But 
throughout this whole journey of having to pitch to raise this capital, how many investor pitches do you think you ultimately had to give to finally get three yeses? Yeah, but we started to make a list of, uh, of the, the people that we talked to, the, 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 the funds or the families or the, the investors. And I think the list ultimately was uh, over 100, so over 100 different entities that we spoke to to invest money in the company. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, 100, more than 100. Yeah, for sure. So you're way smarter than me. You're an engineer. I'm assuming you're way better at math than myself as well. But for all those listening in, three investors out of 100 is 3%. If it's over 100, it's less than 3%. So just do that math in your head when you're going out and pitching. In theory, there's less than 3% of a chance of that investor who you're pitching to investing in you. So just know that this game is difficult. Um, but it does take finesse and time and it does get better over time as we validated with other guests on this podcast, people who have done that multiple times as being serial entrepreneurs or serial capital raisers. The process does get a little bit more refined each time you do it, but however, nevertheless, it's not easy. Um, one of the questions that I, I always have fun asking, it's kind of like, tell me the name of your company and what does it mean? How did you ultimately end up at 1.8 million that's a, that's a unique number. And also it's seed funding, right? So you can either think it's, it's a very big seed for typical medical devices, right? Um, some, we're seeing seed funding in the millions for software devices and things like that. Um, 1.8 could be a really small round A or a series A, um, but you called it seed funding and you got 1.8. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So, um, yeah, it's always difficult to, to see how much you can raise. So ultimately, you want to raise funding to give you the longest runway. But at a certain point, you also, yeah, maybe you, you, you ask for a, a lot of millions, which maybe in different places in the world you can, uh, you can raise it as an initial starting, uh, starting round. You can have higher numbers than 1.8. I think here in Holland, uh, 1.8, it's, it's a good number uh, to raise. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to, in all honesty, to, to get that amount of money. Um, and then uh, the reason to call it seed or C or series A, yeah, we also juggled a bit. Uh, what's the actually? How do you call it? It's just in the name, right? I mean, um, yeah, we think that um, with, with this stage and also uh, with the purpose of the money, we could still call it seed. Um, and the next uh, amount of money that uh, that we have to raise uh, also for for clinical trials that really go into the uh, the series A route. So I have three more questions. That won't take up too much time, but I just wanted to close off with these ones and I, and I won't forget them. Um, <clears throat> and I hope I don't forget them. I, I have to... <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about pitch decks, the European medical device regulations, and your general philosophy to sign off the conversation with, um, with regards to your advice to entrepreneurs, the proverbial you five years ago, or even a year and a half ago or two years ago or whatever it may be, right? Um, so let's start with pitch decks. And I'm making a note because I do not want to forget that even though I just said that out loud. Um, so pitch decks, you've, you've maybe had experience doing PowerPoints before as an engineer throughout your time doing some sort of presentations, et cetera. But when it came to telling a story on your innovation technology and now company, and having to tell that story to investors, 
What did you learn about the process of telling your story to investors and what's really important to go in a pitch deck? What would you, and you can tell the story of actually what happened and then almost kind of tell it in an advisory type way for those who are putting their own pitch decks together. What do investors like to see and what did you learn about evolving your pitch deck and telling your company story? I think what investors want to see and also what, what we've learned is just a crystal clear story. From top to bottom, it should make total sense why these are the slides that you are presenting. Even if you would explain it to a, to a little kid, they have to understand that this is investable and that this is worth spend, spending the money on and putting the money into. Um, if I look back at the early pitch decks that we made, there was a lot of science still in there, uh, a lot of unknowns, uh, a lot of assumptions. And if you present this in front of an investor, they will tell you to come back once you have figured these, uh, these fake items. So only at the point in time when things become crystal clear, even to yourself, because so you know for yourself what are the strong items in your pitch deck and what are the weak items. But every single issue has to be addressed or you need to have a super great story why with the investment you are going to tackle the open issue that is still there. So um, unless you're not able to fully articulate the, the story from top to bottom, that's the point in time where most likely it will still be difficult to get the investment in your company. And then last, any last advice on the length of deck? I mean, do you, do you lead with a one pager executive summary and then tell investors, hey, um, if you're interested, then I'll send you a longer deck? Or what's your theory on length? I mean, is it something that you more verbally tell the story or... Do you have a 20 page slide deck or a 10 page slide deck? Yeah, that's also something as one of my advisors. I think also, you know him, uh, Shaq Deckers. He was uh, also uh, a great advisor also here in, in Eindhoven as well. And he introduced me to someone, I think he is formerly from Apple. It's called Guy Kawasaki. Uh, and he has this philosophy of uh, a 10 page slide deck uh, in which with, with 10 slides, you can explain, you should be able to explain your full business story. Um, so I think that's an interesting example to just have a look at, just to see if you would be able to fit your story in just 10 slides uh, and then cover it all. Um, I think uh, the shorter, the, the more crystal clear the, the story, the better. And as soon as you dwell into too much details, they will not read it. So as a first impression, just keep it short and crisp and, yeah, and, and crystal clear. Love that. By the way, shout out to Shock Deckers, current CEO of Microsure. He was actually the reason that I ended up on the um, high-tech campus to begin with when he invited me over there a few years ago. And actually, I got to see it firsthand. So I've known Shock for years, and he's just an amazing human being, as well as an entrepreneur. And we've actually even uh, had some fun and partied together in, in Australia, too. So uh, Shock, <laughs> very, very cool person. I'm glad he's your mentor. Um, want to jump into your thoughts very quickly. As an early stage entrepreneur in, the, in, in Europe at this point, from your perspective, have the European medical device regulations done anything for your company and technology? Yeah, that's also an interesting story. So um, um, I know it affects a lot of companies and also lead times for notified bodies. They grew tremendously. Uh, and I think if you were working on a, on a product and you were just in this transition period, it's a hard time. Um, in all honesty, we were just so premature that for us, we were not really in that process yet. It was really still on the, on the product development phase. Um, and as a class three medical device, it's already hard to get it approved. You still already needed to do all your clinical trials and collect all the data to have that in place. 
Um, so it's um, yeah a question to what extent it really affects the class three medical devices. And uh, yeah, for us, it's it's just an, the new standard that we that we just have to uh, to apply to. Otherwise, you just don't enter. Uh, but since we are now at that phase is now starting and it's now this is the new the, the new playbook uh, we just have to stick to it. So luckily for us, it did not really affect the things dramatically. And I know this is a one-off story because it's your company, and I don't want to speak for all class three technology in Europe right now. But um, it's just good insight for those listening in right now. If if the U, the e, the European medical device regulations didn't necessarily change the world for class three medical devices in Europe. Um, and it was still hard to get then. And now it's still hard to get now um, in terms of CE mark. Are you still taking a CE mark first approach as a European company? Or are you looking to the FDA like a lot of other companies are first before CE mark? Or is it in parallel? Um, we definitely are looking into ways to also start in the US. I think what, what is changing there as well is also there are earlier opportunities, even if you're uh, a little bit more less mature than you used to be before to already get in touch with the FDA and start the process there. So I think what changed in the US is that things got a little bit more easier to start there, to get in touch with the FDA and also for your clinical trials to have uh, an opportunity to start clinical trials in an earlier stage of development, uh, although then accepting that the FDA is just uh, really on top of your of your dossier, which is I think makes total sense. So I think there to become more opportunities to uh, yeah to to start the process earlier. Um, I think um, still for a company for us we still need the CE mark and it's important to have. Uh, but I think for for timelines uh, from what, how I see it now uh, things can still go in parallel. We will still have an FDA uh, route and a, and a CE route. Very good. Last question. A final sign off. If you could speak to yourself five years ago, right before you became a full-blown entrepreneur um, and all those entrepreneurs or even want to be entrepreneurs who are struggling to raise money now or will be raising money in the near future for their ideas that eventually come innovation, become innovation. If you could talk to this room of, of early stage entrepreneurs about just in general, a philosophy of how to approach fundraising, what would you say to them? Yeah, what I learned and what I would do differently now is that once you start engaging with investors and you really have some good conversations with investors, the deal is not done unless there is a signature on the paper. So we have had multiple times that we thought that we had really good traction, really good interaction with the VCs. And even and still at the very last moment, something could happen for which they will pull out. So really make sure to have your contingency plan in place, uh, have different routes and, and parallel routes to follow that yeah, in case your your most interesting or, your, or the one that you are focusing on is, uh, is is being turned down, that you still have an alternative uh, to work on, and that's a, a hard lesson that we learned. Um, I thought that things were really going in the right direction, and then at a certain point in time, we had to start all over again. And what I would do different now is just keep keep parallel lines, uh, keep them going, uh, and the deal is only done once the the signature is on the paper. I love it, Bart Sanders. It's always a pleasure seeing you in person. It was a pleasure spending this hour and change with you right now. Thank you so much for telling the story of 
how you started Stentit and your history and ultimately went through this entrepreneurial journey and grind to formally raise 1.8 million euros and all the story that we've wrapped around that and, and the insights that you've learned along the way. So I want to say thank you very much for your time. This is Bart Sanders, founder and CEO of Stentit. Thank you so much. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital in medtech. Thank you so much, Bart. Thanks, Giovanni. Thanks for having me. And I hope that my story uh, helps other entrepreneurs out there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.